it's good to be back in the building uh, on Sunday morning and know that we're coming back here Sunday evening. That's exciting for me and I hope for you as well. Um, and uh, uh, as has already been said, we're, we're hoping to continue to take precautions because uh, we know that this is an ongoing situation with COVID-19. Uh, but we are, are very happy that we've been uh, blessed to be able to come back and to assemble together as, uh, as we're, uh, we, we want to do uh, whenever is possible. We uh, are a family, and so part of our uh, being a family is to support and uplift one another. And we do that with our, just with our very presence uh, together here, together uh, on the Lord's Day. If you'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, Exodus chapter 32, that's where we're going to be taking our lesson from this morning. Exodus chapter 32 and um, in verse uh, 26, we see a very important question uh, asked, which is, who is on the Lord's side? Whose side are you on? And that's the question we're going to consider this morning. in Exodus uh, chapter 32 and verse 26, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And the sons of Levi gathered around him. And I want to, uh, I want to take a moment to explore that story in Exodus 32 and then talk about what it means for us. There are some times when you run across uh, questions uh, in the Bible that resonate with, with the human heart. Uh, and which uh, which must be asked for uh, I'm looking for my clicker here, which must be asked uh, and we which, which we must consider when we're thinking about um, what 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 are what is what are our lives here? What is our purpose? Where are we headed? Um, how do we put ourselves within the will of God? How do we be acceptable to Him? And uh, one of the important questions is who is on the Lord's side? What side? Are you on? Whose side are you on? So let's read actually uh, the entirety of Exodus chapter uh, 32. And uh, it's going to be a little bit of a long reading, but it'll be worth it to get the, uh, the full context of this story. And I won't do my full uh, exposition. We'll just make a few notes as we go through. And then we'll look at some other passages that sort of uh, line up with this idea as well. So Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears, or that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought him peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So we see uh, in the story, uh, the first thing is that the people of Israel committed a great sin 
by violating God's holiness with this idolatry. Um, my mouse here keeps wanting to float around on the screen, so I don't know what's causing that. Uh, but the, the, the people committed a great sin by violating God's holiness with this idolatry. And they were aware, uh, very aware, that they were not supposed to do this. I'll turn back to Exodus chapter 20. You can see this uh, quite clearly when God delivers uh, these Ten Commandments to Moses. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse, verse 3 and 4, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. Specifically in verse 4, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Okay, so these uh, graven images as objects of worship were forbidden and the people had known and had consented to this. Look at Exodus chapter 24 uh, and verse 4. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and, and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and, and, I'm sorry, I, I, that was supposed to be uh, Exodus 24 and verse 3. Uh, sorry about that. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his rules and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So not just had God clearly conveyed that they were not supposed to engage in this idolatry, but the people had said, yes, we agree. We will not do that. We will do all the things that the Lord has commanded, one of which was to not make any graven image. So the anger of the Lord burns hot, we see, against this sin. And his anger burns hot against all violations of his holiness. And every sin is a violation of God's holiness. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So that's what we do with our sin. We corrupt ourselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God is going to release his full wrath on the people um, for this violation. He says, let me alone. In other words, don't interfere. I'm going to let my wrath burn hot. And, and the consequence of that, it seems, will be that they will be consumed. They will be utterly destroyed um, by this wrath of God. But notice that the people are saved from the wrath of God by the mercy of of an intercessor. The intercessor here is going to be Moses. He's going to go before God and say, wait, 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 please don't do that with, with your wrath and consuming the people. Look at verse 11 through verse 14. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out? to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. 
Then Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So one goes before the Lord and pleads for mercy. And the mercy is given by the Father. So the Lord relents from this disaster. But we see that there are still consequences to this sin. And Moses, even though he acts as sort of the merciful intercessor who pleads with God to not take his full vengeance on the people, he also shares in the Lord's anger. And his anger is aroused when he sees the things which make the Lord angry. Let's look at, uh, let's look at verses 15 through 20. Verses 15 through 20. When then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was, was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw and saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And, took, and he took the calf that they, had burnt, that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it, into, ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it okay so some pretty intense anger that Moses feels at uh, at this at this violation of uh, of God's holiness again I don't know what's going on with Mark's computer but the mouse flies all over the screen and I don't if, if it kills my PowerPoint I don't know I don't know what to do there so hopefully it'll work um, but uh, so Moses shares in God's anger, even though he's pled with, with, with God for mercy, he shares in God's anger at this violation of God's holiness. And then we see in verses 21 through, through 24, Aaron's false and hypocritical answer. But maybe we can sort of put ourselves in his shoes and understand his position as we read through verses 21 through 24. Moses said to Aaron, why did the people, uh, why did this people do uh, to you, or, excuse me, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. So obviously, uh, we've just read the beginning of the chapter. We know that that is not uh, what happened. That's not how it's described um, when this initially takes place. Moses is very intentional, and it's, it's noted that he uses a graving uh, tool uh, and so this was not just sort of a, an a, a accident or a, some sort of miraculous happenstance that brings forth this, 
this calf. No, it is the will of men to violate uh, God's laws. It is the desire for sin which has made this calf and not the fire. But we also understand that Aaron is high priest and these people before him have formed what is, in essence, it seems like a mob. They're saying, we don't know what happened to Moses. The implication is he's probably dead. We want gods who will lead us. And Aaron uh, has the choice. He can make a stand and, and put his foot down or he can relent uh, to the people and and by doing so probably save himself because if Moses or if Aaron takes this stand there's no telling what the people are going to do so we can understand why Aaron who is otherwise uh, you know a relatively uh, you know right, righteous and decent man by human standards uh, who serves God in, in in different parts of the story of, uh, of Moses but he quickly relents to to the people's will and I think it is out of fear out of fear that, that something will happen to him. But of course, this is not an excuse, right? Uh, it, it's still false and, and hypocritical for him who knows better to stand now before Moses and say, and make these excuses. Um, but all of that aside, there's still a problem. The camp is now divided. There is um, impurity in worship in the camp. Uh, some of the people have given themselves over to these gods and maybe maybe many or most of the people or all of the people have given themselves over to these gods um, th there is no way to tell uh, how many people have kept themselves pure and how many people have given themselves over to idolatry in this in, in this story and so uh, what we do know we see in verses 25 through 30 about how this issue is resolved so let's read through the end of the chapter now, verses 25 through 30. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword to your side, each of you. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, if, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. When the Lord sent a plague, then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Okay, so this is uh, a, a uh, 
quite a story we get here in Exodus 32, and there's a lot that we could say about it, but I want to focus in on what this question means for us today. Who is on the Lord's side? Um, there is no neutrality in a spiritual war, and this is what we are engaged in. We are engaged in a spiritual conflict. Um, we, we've studied this al already, uh, but turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We've, we've studied it in our, in our Romans class, which we've been going through, and we've gone through chapter 6 of Romans uh, already a few weeks ago. Um, but uh, I think it's important to go over this again, just, just to reiterate it. Uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, going through verse 19. Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented yourselves as members, uh, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So we will either be slaves to uh, the powers of darkness, slaves to Satan, or we will be slaves to the Lord and slaves to Christ, and we will put on his righteousness through our servitude to him. But it's also just deeper than just saying that we are with the Lord. Uh, lots of people say that they are, are with the Lord, uh, but that doesn't make it so. And it, it is deeper than, than just appearances in any case. Um, in Matthew 12, Jesus says, that uh, he who is uh, not with me is against me. It's also interesting that in Mark 9, Jesus says, he who is not against me is with me. So he says it both ways. Um, and I think one of the things we're supposed to take from that is that only the Lord knows who is with him. Men judge on the appearance of things. And one who, uh, one who is, has opened themselves to, to Jesus Will not, suit, will not long be able to resist his name. I think that's part of the meaning of the passage in, in Mark 9 when he, when he sort of flips that saying around. Um, it, it, if you let the door open to Christ even a little bit, the door will soon be fully flung open all the way. And if you close the door to Christ in your heart, but you say that you believe in him, it will soon become evident that you do not actually believe in him. So it runs deeper than just saying that we believe in the Lord. It's deeper than just saying, yep, uh, I, I believe in, in Jesus. Um, it's more than that. And it's more than just mere obedience. It's more than just doing the things uh, that he has told us to do, even though that is quite important. But, but there will be many in the last day who have done many things, um, thinking that they were in the name of Christ, who will be disappointed. Um, in Matthew uh, chapter 7, we, we see this. I think it's worth turning there. Uh, we might, uh, we're going to flip around a little bit in Matthew today. Um, but in Matthew chapter 7, um, in verses 21 through 23, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, uh, speaking of uh, the final judgment, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there are some who think that they are serving Jesus who will be sadly disappointed in the last day, who Jesus has not known because they have not known him. But, uh, and, and we could also point out that the Pharisees of Jesus' day were quite externally obedient um, to the commands of God in a certain sense. And yet, Jesus uh, condemns them. We can see that in Matthew uh, 23, and it's probably worth going there as well. Matthew 23 uh, and verse uh, 23 through 24. Matthew 23 and verse 23 through 24. where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Speaking about the tithing of the spices. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So Jesus is saying, you've got everything backwards here. You've emphasized obedience in these very relatively smaller matters instead of uh, internalizing uh, the spiritual uh, qualities that one who's seeking after righteousness would, would need. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. So if we're, if we're focusing on uh, the, the small, relatively speaking, I mean, nothing... In, in what has been revealed from God is, is, is small uh, in the sense of being valueless. But if we're not focusing on the high ideals that are set before us by Christ and on internalizing his character, and instead we're, we want to litigate um, these, these smaller matters, um, we're missing the camel, which is the bigger thing, at, uh, for the sake of the gnat. Uh, and and we're, we're getting the matters of first importance behind the matters uh, of, of less importance. So Christ called his disciples to follow him or to walk after him. He said those who are in him will be known by their fruit. If you flip back to Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, uh, he says this. Um, it's speaking about uh, those who will teach in his name, but, but you can generally just apply this to... Um, to anyone who claims the name of Christ will be known by their fruit. He says in verse 15, beginning in verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the, dis but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So if we're not bearing the fruit that comes from the qualities of Christ, um, then we know we've got a problem. We know we have something that, that needs to be corrected. We've got a d disease uh, in our tree, so to speak, uh, that we have to uh, fix, or we have to, uh, to be you know, allow Christ to fix um, before we can proceed, before we can develop. 
And we confirm that we are on his side, not just by doing the things that he has commanded, although that, again, that is extremely important that we obey, but it's by developing his qualities within us. So this is where faith meets works. We, we, we can't be uh, doing nothing or our faith is dead. Um, we can't be just doing the right things without the right inner qualities. And otherwise, uh, because if we're doing that, then our, then our works um, are, are not motivated from a place of faith. I think the passage that, 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 is, that makes this most clear uh, is 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. And I've referenced this passage uh, a, a number of times in, in many different lessons, but I think it is uh, one of the more comforting and clear passages in all the epistles as, as far as how we progress and how we mark our progress as Christians. So 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 5 through 11. Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your vir- and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if we are developing these qualities, adding to faith virtue, virtue knowledge, knowledge to self-control, self-control steadfastness, steadfastness godliness, godliness brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love, these things are given... Uh, in a chain and you can take them that way or you can just take them all together as Christ-like qualities that we should be developing. But if these things are in us and they're increasing, if they're growing, if we're not stagnant, then we know that in this way there will be an entrance richly provided to us um, into, the ki- into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is how, uh, to, to put it uh, briefly, we, we confirm that we are, in fact, on the Lord's side. But this question carries with it some bad news and some good news uh, for uh, the world at large. Uh, and and these, there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind when we're going out to the world uh, and trying to bring them uh, Christ. And, and it, when we do that, we're forced to put this question before them. Whose side are you on? Who is on the Lord's side? So the bad news, there, there, is, uh, there is some bad news here. Um, the Part of the bad news is not all who think they are on the Lord's side really are. And we've already sort of uh, uh, touched on, on this idea um, some, but uh, I, I think it, it is uh, useful to look at uh, John 12 uh, and, and verse 42. We actually don't have to, to turn to all these because I'm going to run out of time. But in John 12 and verse 42, if you look at that, Jesus, um, there are places in the Gospels that indicate that there were Pharisees who believed on Jesus but did not uh, confess his name. That's what you'll see in John uh, 12 verse 42 because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. So they believed 
but they weren't ready to take the action that was required because they feared the consequences. Belief or or trust uh, is supposed to cast out fear, right? Faith is the opposite of fear. And it's not that we won't ever feel fear when we are in faith, but it's that faith is always the answer to whatever fear we are feeling. Um, So uh, the Pharisees, because of their fear, uh, the, the, the little faith that they had, and it came from seeing be, uh, the, the power of Jesus and the wonderful signs that he performed. But even that faith, which was confirmed with their own eyes, um, did not lead them to submit themselves to the will of God. So it's more than just saying, I believe. True faith is a loving, working faith. Um, in James 2:26, many of us are familiar with that passage, faith without works is dead. Um, another great passage uh, to go to here, and we, we will turn there because I think it's uh, an important one, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and I'll read verses uh, 4 through 6 of Galatians chapter 5. If I can, if I can get there, I should have marked this one. Galatians chapter 5. Verses 4 through 6. You are saved from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away. uh, Excuse me, uh, verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith working through love. That is a beautifully succinct description of biblical uh, faith in, in Christ. The only thing that counts for anything in Christ is faith working through love. Faith works, and faith doesn't just work, but works through love. Uh, Everything we do is motivated by love. Love for Christ, love for fellow man. So uh, being nice, uh, a nice person, a pleasant person, or being a good person, uh, you know, in in the sense that we call, you know, my neighbor, uh, he did a favor for me, uh, he's a a good guy, he's a good person, or, you know, my coworker, uh, you know, we talk about our favorite TV shows, he's, he's a good guy. Uh, it's not the same as being cleansed from your sins. There are many, many people who, who are fine people, people you'd, you'd want to have as your friends, people you'd want to have in your support system, uh, people uh, that are eminently trustworthy and eminently moral people, we could even say, but they haven't been cleansed from their sins. And that is a huge spiritual problem. It's the ultimate spiritual problem. Because we are without law, we are lost without salvation, without cleansing from our sins. I think we see that very clearly in Acts 10 and Acts 11, uh, when Cornelius is described as a devout man, um, but he still lacked something. And in verse uh, in uh, in Acts 11, uh, verse 4, um, and let's let's just go ahead and turn there uh, because I think the language there is uh, is interesting and, and spells this out. Uh, Acts chapter 11. In verse 4, uh, this is after it in, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 2, 
Cornelius is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. In Acts 11, uh, in verse 4, um, Peter, uh, excuse me, Acts 11 and verse 14, uh, Peter says uh, he received this message. Uh, excuse me, Acts, 10, or Acts 11 and verse 14 says he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your households. So Cornelius was a devout man who prayed to God continually, did many good works. He still needed to be saved. He still was lacking something. Um, and many, uh, many of our friends uh, in the world um, are good folks, are even devout folks um, who uh, earnestly uh, wish to be right with God. Um, we need to be helping them there. We need to be bringing to them that which they do not know. Um, and we do that by showing them Christ and Him crucified. There are many in the religious world and even, uh, even you know, within the churches of Christ who are not on the Lord's side. There are many false teachers. There are many blind guides. There are many vain worshipers. There are um, churches uh, which are actually Satan's synagogues. There are ministers who are actually Satan's ministers. Um, and you, you can uh, write these verses down if you want and, and, and go to them. I, we won't go to all these here, but there's a clear pattern through the New Testament that Satan and the powers of darkness uh, manipulate uh, the gospel in order to lead people astray. And this is something we've talked about in Romans class as well, that the powers of darkness can take even good and holy things given by God and twist them um, in order to cause people's destruction in order to lead them um, uh, uh, off the path. So too often even we fall back on our spiritual heritage. But we should remember the warning that John the Baptist gave to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3 and verse, uh, in verse 9 where John the Baptist uh, says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9 do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. There were a lot of great men that came before us and who blazed our, our path when it comes to um, proclaiming the word away from the strictures of any denominational creed or away from any uh, prescribed doctrine handed down by a, a, a class of clergy uh, for the people. Instead, uh, there were many men who came before us who insisted on, we take the word alone, and that is what we live by. And they were right to do so. But friends, we can't just fall back on that and say, this is why we're saved. This is why we know we're right. We have to be in the word ourselves. We have to be walking after Christ ourselves. Um, and we're not going to lead many or any to Christ uh, if we're not constantly examining ourselves and seeing whether we are actually walking after him and if our understanding uh, is actually uh, the biblical understanding intended by God for us to receive. Rest in Christ comes only when we have put our complete trust in him and surrender to none other. 
no other earthly or fleshly power but Christ. Um, I'm not saying any of this to, to denigrate or to disrespect any of the great men who've gone before us, but it is to say that, um, that those men and those manners of teaching and preaching and understanding Scripture, um, these are not the things that we are converted to, or it better not have been. We better have been converted to Christ and Him crucified, and that's where we'd better be placing our trust. He is the only one who's ever lived who is worthy of our complete and total trust and surrender. So, the bad news is many have been and are being led astray. And we need to take precautions against that and warn the world that not everyone who comes in the name of Christ truly bears his name and is truly walking after his pattern. But there is some good news as well, and that's what I want to end on. The good news is that, well, in, in my opinion, and I think this is backed up by Scripture and by history uh, in, in more recent times, um, in every generation, I believe, there is a remnant preserved by the Lord who are faithful. And in the case of Exodus chapter 32, there was a, a remnant of the Levites. Um, they demonstrated their faithfulness by responding to Moses' call. We're responding to the call, who is on the Lord's side? Now, I don't know how, how clean and clear the Levites had been kept from, from this idolatry as it was happening. I don't know if they were protesting this. I don't know if they were involved in it. But when the call came, who's on the Lord's side, one way or another, they were convicted enough to come to Moses' side. And not only that, they were prepared to take what we would call today drastic action. Um, there were 3,000 people who lost their lives here, um, which is no small thing. But what was the purpose? The purpose was to preserve the reverence and worship of the Lord in their camp. There was now a contingent of people who had gone away and had given themselves wholly to idolatrous worship. And those people had to be dealt with. And this can seem very brutal and, and violent to us, and, and it certainly was. But we have to remember that the world was changed by the grace that Jesus Christ brought. The only reason that we sort of have this um, reaction where we recoil from, from the kinds of violence that we see described often in the Old Testament is because Christ came preaching a grace beyond the law. We came preaching a grace... Uh, for forgiveness for sinners. Christ said to the woman uh, the, caught in adultery who was condemned under the law uh, when, when no man could stand to condemn her because Jesus had asked them who is without sin, essentially. Then he said to her, neither do I condemn you. So it's because of Jesus that we have this aversion uh, to the brutality and violence that was commonplace uh, in the world in ancient times. I think we, we fail to see that sometimes. But, but beyond that, the Levites paint a picture for us of what we must do. We follow after their pattern if we want to be in his camp. The camp that we must cleanse uh, is not, you know, some people have this idea that we have to make the world right or make our nation right or even sort of, you know, cleanse bad elements out of, out of the church and that that's our responsibility. 
But no, our, our, our primary responsibility is to cleanse our own hearts. That is the camp that we are to cleanse. Cut down and eradicate every fickle and unfaithful member of yourself so that you may enter whole in spirit into the kingdom as Christ instructed. I think we see this in, in Matthew chapter 18. If you want to turn back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 18 uh, and verses 7 through 9. Matthew 18 and verses 7 through 9, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled and lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Throw away everything that does not lead you toward the kingdom of God. Cut out of your life everything and every person and every thought that is not leading you toward Christ and his kingdom. Jesus said that we are his friends if we do the things he has commanded us. And to be a friend of Christ is a beautiful thing indeed. And this is part of why we obey. And again, nothing I've said here should, should diminish in your mind the importance of following and obeying the commands of Christ. Um, in, in John 15 and verse 14, uh, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. We have been given all the knowledge that Jesus had from his Father. All that knowledge which is useful for life and godliness has been shared with us. Every secret thing has been revealed in Christ. We are his friends now if we follow after his pattern. And we're not just friends of Christ, but we become true children of the Most High in the grace that Christ offers. Uh, John also records this for us. This is in one of his epistles. But in, in, 1, John, uh, in, in 1 John chapter 2, uh, the end of chapter 2 into, verse, or into chapter 3, and this is another passage that I, that I reference frequently, but I think it, uh, it is another one that really unlocks this important thing that, that, that we miss sometimes. The glory of being called a child of God. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
The good news is that we are not just friends of Christ who came to save us, but through him we've, become, we've been made children of the Father, children of the Most High. And in an ancient context, who were the children? To the Lord of, of the manor or the Lord of the land. They were the ones who would inherit his wealth and his glory. That's the position we are in now. The Most High in all the universe, the one who crafted everything that we see and who knows everything that we could ever wish to know, we will dwell with him in perfect union one day because of the work that Christ has done for us. That's good news if ever I heard it. To be a true child of the Most High, you must come to him as a child with the faith of a child. And that is exactly what it sounds like. A child, uh, if, if, if they have a good father, um, they are never in doubt that all is well when the father is near. To be a child, uh, to come to Christ as a child, we must put our trust in him as a child puts their trust in their father. It's a simple trust. But this simple trust will open a well of wonderful works in you for all the world to see. This is something that becomes evident to everyone. And it will become a spring of inner renewal for you to see in yourself. You will look within and say, how did I become this person? You'll think of who you were and look at yourself now and say, look at what wonderful work the Lord has done. Turn to John chapter 4. We're closing out here, but John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. This is Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. And there he says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Speaking of the well of Jacob. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. In Christ, the water of life that we drink renews within us and renews us each day and gives us new life until we reach that ultimate life, that final uh, state that we will live in forever, eternal dwelling with Him. If you haven't made your choice yet, if you don't know whose side you're on, we beg you, do not wait another day. In simple, childlike faith, choose the Lord's side today and claim your crown, eternal life, eternal preservation in Him. We'll end, uh, we'll end with one final verse to reflect on. Turn to, turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. We're never there. We're never finished. We've never attained it. Not even the Apostle Paul had attained it. But notice what he says in verses 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We're constantly striving. We're constantly aiming for more, aiming higher, aiming to be allowed to prosper even more than we have through the grace of God. And we've never made it. We've never attained it. But we know what we've been given already in Christ. We know the prize that we've already received, a remade and sanctified life. And we're not letting go of that for anything. We're just going to keep growing and keep abounding until we abound infinitely in union with Him in the heavenlies. If that is your hope, if you desire to be a child of God, choose the Lord today. Believe, trust in His name and in His gospel that He is the Savior of your soul. Repent of your sins and open yourself toward the will of God. Do not, be, turn, do not turn your back on Him anymore, but turn toward Him. Confess His name before men. Be cleansed of your sins in baptism and enter His covenant. And then walk after His ways, always abounding, in the Lord, and He will make you abound. If there are any who need to choose the Lord today, we ask that you would do that as we stand and sing the song that's been announced.